Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this evening to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. And we'll be considering together, with the Lord's help, the end of verse 17 and verse 18 and 19. This is a text that we have looked at previously and mentioned a few times in recent weeks, and we will give our consideration to it uh, under the Lord's hand tonight. Ephesians 3, verse 17, halfway through, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. The world without the love of the Lord Jesus Christ would be a world without light. It would be a world of utter and absolute darkness. It would be pitch blackness. And yet in some respects, this is the very world, a world of darkness that the unconverted inhabit. The Bible tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven to all men, that they have an acquaintance with the fact that he is just that he is righteous, that they are accountable, that there is a day of judgment and a day of reckoning uh, that is coming. But for the unbelieving and disobedient, there is no sight nor savor of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn our gaze from this world into the next. We look into heaven and there we see a world of love. There we see a world of infinite depths of love. Why? Because God is love. God himself is love. And it is his glory that fills the expanse with light. His love shines forth as light. Indeed, when the Apostle Paul found himself on the road to Damascus, he tells us in Acts 26, the third time he recounts his conversion, that a light shone from heaven that was brighter than the sun. And in that experience, something else happened. The love of God was shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Ghost. And he was brought to see and to savor something of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and granting him, an unworthy sinner like all sinners, the pardon and forgiveness of, of all of his sins. That's heaven. Heaven is a world of love. And yet we're not left merely with that because the one who is love has come into this world as the incarnate word and he embodies love. He is the one who reveals love to us so that, as we heard in the prayer this evening, we behold his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, that we behold the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, we behold divine love, wrapped up in the person and in the work of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here the Apostle Paul is describing to the church at Ephesus how he prays. He takes them, as it were, by the hand and shows them what, other one, what no one would otherwise know. He takes them behind the curtain into the closet. And he says, when I get down on my knees... And I pray for your congregation, Ephesus, when I pray for the souls of you who are a part of that congregation, this is how I pray. 
This is what I ask. This is what I seek. This is what I fetch from heaven under the Lord's blessing for your own souls. He says that they may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. And so we look this evening uh, at this incomprehensible love, this incomprehensible love. The first thing that we see is that the believer is founded in Christ's love. The believer is founded in Christ's love. Look at verse 17, that ye being rooted and grounded in love, rooted and grounded in love. Here we have two very graphic pictures. No doubt you're familiar with them. The first is from horticulture, from the plant world, right? The idea of a tree or of uh, a vegetable plant or what have you, putting down their roots into the soil. That's the picture. And he's saying, I'm praying that you would be rooted in love, that you would sink down your, your roots, the roots of your soul, well-rooted in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know that, that, that trees get their, their roots deep. For what end, children? Why? Why do the roots go down and down and down into the ground? Well, one is for nourishment, right? They get water from the ground. They, get, they draw minerals from the ground, other nutrients from, from the soil. And that's what feeds the, the tree. And so it's the part underground that you don't see that's doing all the eating in order that there might be green leaves and fruits and, you know, lush foliage, foliage and so on in the, in the branches of the tree. That's one reason. Another reason that trees put down their roots is for stability. So the storm comes and the winds are howling and the rain is beating or snow is falling and they're able to stay upright. They're able to be stable because they're well rooted, whereas you know, a tree that is poorly rooted, you've seen it, right? It easily is toppled over and it comes up because of the shallow roots that are there. So this is the picture, right? It gives resources to bear fruit and, and so on and so forth. And so the picture for the believer is that the believer is to put down the roots of their soul, their, as we'll see, comprehension, their thinking, their experience, and so on, into the love of the Lord Jesus. This is what stabilizes the Christian in the midst of trials and temptations, in the midst of assaults from the devil, in the midst of disappointments and losses, in the midst of persecution and all sorts of other things. What is it that keeps the Christian stable when other people are toppled? Well, in part, it is being rooted, understanding well the nature of the love of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. What makes them fruitful? You remember Paul says to the to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, he speaks about the constraining love of Christ, its influence on us, right? that, that picture of the, the compelling or propelling love of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it has an influence that drives the Christian forward, that enables them to choose sacrifice, that enables them to choose suffering rather than sinning, that enables them to spend and be spent for the glory of Jesus Christ and the good of souls that enables them to seek and maintain, sustain communion uh, with the Lord and so on. It's the love of Christ. It's the sight and savor of that 
that, that propels them forward in holiness and obedience and in service and in devotion to the Lord and so on. That's the picture. What happens when a, when, when a person finds themselves grappling with doubts about Christ's love? What happens? Well, the converse of what I've described, right? There's a fragility. There's a lack of stability spiritually. There's a decrease in fruitfulness that comes. And isn't this why, as I've said on other occasions, that the devil makes such a particular target in the souls of God's people about the love of, about the, love of the Lord Jesus Christ? He seeks with all the power he can muster to undermine the believer's confidence in Christ's love. And so a person falls into sin and there's a sense of shame and guilt and so on and so forth that happens on any given day or circumstance, big and small. And the believer is immediately assaulted with, I'm a failure and I've fallen short and I have dishonored the Redeemer and I have brought shame to him as well as to myself and so on. And these thoughts which were lurking begin to filter to the surface, don't they? And we begin to question at times. Can the Lord love us still, covered in our filth, covered in blood and grime and mire of our sins? Can the Lord love us now? Can he love us still? It's no wonder that the devil attacks this. And of course, the Christian knows that the Lord never loved them for what was in them. He loved them while they were still enemies, while they were utterly and absolutely opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ, when there was ferocious and fierce opposition to everything that God was. He loved them. So how has that changed? The Lord's love is not dependent in the first instance upon who we are. And yet these doubts arise, and you can see why. And so Paul knows that. He's the pastor of pastors, right? He is furnished with remarkable wisdom. And so he seeks in secret that the people would be grounded, that they would be rooted in, in the love of God. But he also says grounded, uh, being rooted and grounded <clears throat> in the love of God. This isn't horticulture. This is, this is architecture, isn't it? This is the picture of buildings, footers being dug. And, you know, concrete being poured and foundations being laid upon which to build, grounded, a firm foundation. He's saying, I desire that you be well, a well-laid foundation in love would take place so that there can be a well-constructed life that is, that is built uh, upon it. You know, those who are in the construction industry, as some of you are, know better than I, that if you want to go high... You have to go deep, that the taller the building is and the more it's going to weigh, the deeper and more solid the foundation has to be. And so to be enabled as a Christian to scale, as it were, the heights of communion with God, the sight of his glory, fellowship with him, knowledge of his love, we have to be well grounded. We have to go deep to have a sound foundation. And so the question comes, you know, to, to each of you this evening, from what, 
from what do you, in particular, from what do you draw your nourishment and stability? Because we don't take for granted the fact that all have the same answer. You know, for those of you who are unconverted, it's all sorts of things. You draw your, your life's nourishment, as it were, your personal stability from your job being okay, or your marriage being sound, or your health being vibrant, and, and so on and so forth. And you get a sense of stability from that. You get you know, the nourishment of life from that. And the Lord's coming to us, and he's, he's reminding us that every attempt to be rooted and grounded in anything but the love of God is a fool's errand. That it is like Jeremiah says, you've hewn for yourself cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water, and you have forsaken the fountain, the fountain of living water. Right? There is only one safe place to put down our roots, one safe place to build our foundation, and that is in, in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. A saving interest in the saving love of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, roots and foundations. Interesting, isn't it, that neither of these things are seen. When I come to your house, I see the house. I don't see the foundation. When I look at the trees in my yard, I see the trunk and all the branches. I don't see the roots. Both of those things are hidden. They're unseen. And this is true for, for people. It's true for, for the believer. Right? All of the, much of the important stuff lies underground. It's unseen. You can see the person. You can see, obviously, their body and facial expressions. You can see something with regards to the spiritual fruitfulness in their life. You can see their character, their manner, their way, and so on and so forth. But none of us can see the roots and the foundation. Here we're to be rooted, grounded, built upon what is best. And he tells us that that is love, as he goes on to say, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Christian must have a deep and a growing and ever deeper spiritual experience of the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is important that we come to taste and see that he is good, that we're not just told it, uh, that we're not just able to affirm it, but that we actually are brought to soak in it. Right? Fruitfulness, it requires deep roots in the love of God. Stability, it requires sustained roots during trials. We need to know something of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our life is to be lived by sinking our hearts into God's love for, for his people. Which is why Paul goes on to pray, secondly, that we would know something of the fullness of Christ's love. And so it's rooted and grounded, true, but also we need to be grasping it. He says in verse 18, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. It sounds as if he's praying for the impossible, right? He's saying, I'm, I'm praying that you'll know what's unknowable and comprehend what's incomprehensible. 
But he's getting at something because every believer who's come to see the glory of the Redeemer, who's come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has had broken up even if a crack to their to the sight of their soul, his love, his dying love for sinners, know instantly that what you see is incomprehensible. That this is not something you can drink to the bottom. That this is not something you can scale the very heights up. That this is not something you will ever, ever, ever be able to wrap your mind around. Seeing a little shows you that much. And that's why the Apostle Paul uses the language he does. He's praying for power, right? That you would be able, that you would have power to comprehend. The word comprehend is the, as, as you, I'm sure many of you will know, in our English language is the idea of grasping something, even in our English language, right? To comprehend is to grasp something. And so here it's grasping it, not with our fingers and palms, but with our mind, to, to grasp it with our heart, to grasp it with our, our whole souls, to be able to take it in, to, to make it our own, to be able to, to grab a hold of the great expanses of, of God's love. And here again, it's not enough. It's not enough for us to give some sort of intellectual assent to this and say, oh, yes, yes, we know that's what the Bible teaches. That's one thing. To be able to say, I can, I can affirm that this is a theological proposition that is true. That, that's important. But that's one thing. It's another thing to actually experience the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can read marriage manuals. You can dissect and describe to the nth degree what it is for husband and wife to love one another and so on and so forth. And never have been married. And actually known it. Right here we're speaking about the comprehension. Being able to soak, to take in for that love of God. To be shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. And so God says to Abraham. He told him to go out and walk the length and breadth of the land. He says do it. Get out there. Beat the trails. Walk the roads. Go through the hills. Over the hills. Cross the rivers. Through the fields. Cross it from tip to top, from, from the top to the bottom. Wherever you set your, the sole of your foot, I'm giving that to you as an inheritance. And here, what we have is the, God giving to us through the inspired writings of the Apostle Paul. He's saying, I'm praying that you'll be able to do that. That, that you'll be given the power to walk over the length and breadth and height and depth of the love of Jesus Christ, that you'll, that you'll actually know it, you'll have seen it, you'll have heard it, you'll have tasted it, you'll have, you'll have traversed its, its wonders. And that's what, that's what the, the prayer is, is that we would know something of, of the fullness of it. And so we go to the cross, and really we need to go nowhere else. We can go elsewhere, and we do go elsewhere, and should go elsewhere. But the cross would be enough to occupy us with the dazzling spectacle of the love of Jesus Christ for all of eternity. If a prince, the most powerful, the most glorious, the most handsome, emperor, prince, whoever, that ever walked the face of the earth, 
were to set his life on the lowliest, grungiest, you know, most despicable street person, drug addict, lunatic, harlot, whatever. If he were to set his love on such an object, it would be absolutely nothing in comparison to what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. Romans 5, while we were yet enemies, while we were yet enemies, we don't have anything in our, in our English language. We don't have anything in human conception that is capable of capturing in our imaginations how absolutely hideous sin is to God. It's impossible. How repulsive it is to him. The utter antithesis to his very being. All that he is. He who is perfectly, infinitely, unchangeably, eternally holy. It's impossible. And yet the Lord set his sights on sinners who are enemies. Who breathed his good air and used his kind gifts and resources in overt rebellion against him. So that the unbelieving eats and drinks and sleeps and breathes and exists in heated opposition to the God of glory. And the Lord says, I'm going to love that. I'm going to place my love on that. And so the Lord comes and we see in the cross what happens. How far is he going to go? How far can he go to love that? To love that despicable, disgraceful, massive ugliness in a sinner. He does the absolute unthinkable. He who knew no sin became sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The Lord Jesus Christ becomes a sin bearer. The Lord Jesus Christ takes upon himself in as close association with his person as possible without himself being sinful. And as the sin bearer undergoes all the cost that sin brings in its wake, the penalty, the punishment, he is plunged, as it were, into hell. The sword of justice is thrust into the depths of his own soul. And he undergoes the appeasing of the wrath of a holy God. Why in the world is this happening? What is going on? When we read of these things in the Gospels, what is happening? Love is happening. True love is happening. It is the outworking of divine love. It is the expression and manifestation of Christ's love. And that's merely touching the surface, isn't it? And merely touching the surface at the cross. Here he's saying that we're to be given power, that we might explore the outer reaches and depths 
of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would see its length, that this is a love which again blows our minds. It goes all the way into eternity past. There is a sovereign electing love, God choosing in love a people for himself as far back as we can go in our minds, love. And we go the other direction. Here's the length. It's as far forward as the mind can go, which isn't very far, into eternity. Those whom he, is, whom he loved, he loves to the end. It's an undying, an unending love, so that it's inexhaustible in its extent into the future. You think of the, the depths of this love, right? You, you, here is one who is God, who's outside time and space, who created the time and space that, that is this cosmos. And he leaves the highest heavens to go into the lowest depths of hell in order to fetch and to pluck brands from the fire. And then if that's not enough, he turns around and takes those brands snatched out of the fire and he takes them all the way into the highest heights above the highest heavens so that they're seated with him on the throne of glory. What's happening here, friends? It's love. It's the love of the Lord Jesus Christ that can cover those expanses, can reach into those depths and scale into those heights to bring us from the dungeon of sin to sit in heavenly places. You can't live without this. You can't live without this. I mean, people use that colloquial phrase, and it's fine in a lot of contexts, but I mean it literally. You cannot live without this love of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are without it this evening, and some of you are, you have no life. You're walking dead men, dead women, children. You're walking death. On your way to eternal death. You can't live without the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can't quench this love once you, you have it. All of those temptations to think, I have finally outsinned the love of Jesus Christ. Impossible. Our sins, as wicked and reprehensible and deplorable as they are and should be seen as, are finite. His love is infinite. So that where sin is abounded, his grace is able to abound much more. This is a sovereign love, one who loves the unlovable. Indeed, you think to yourself, well, what a wonderful thing it is. In a sense, a sad thing that God loves the unlovable with a sovereign love. You don't get it. Mystery of mysteries. The Lord actually gathers glory to himself in loving the unlovable. It's not as if you are only the recipient of some favor by God placing his sovereign love on you. He does that to the end of actually glorifying himself. He doesn't get, he doesn't, isn't reduced in honor and splendor. His glory is further manifested through this sovereign love. It's an unconditional love. We don't earn it. We can't pay for it. 
There's no merit in it. It is free. It is the Lord who chooses out of the infinite wisdom of his own divine counsel for nothing found in the sinner to place his free love upon them. So we've noted it's an endless love. It's a powerful love. A love that is able to conquer, overwhelm, defeat, destroy all opposition. To remove every hurdle. To tackle and defeat everything that is placed in its path. And it is an unchanging love. Unlike yours. Unlike mine. Our love is wobbly when it's at its best. We love well sometimes, other times we don't love at all. Most of the time, we don't love well. Here's an unchanging, constant, absolutely no fluctuation in Christ's love. None. It is stable. It is continual. To such an extent that Paul says it, as you well know, at the end of Romans 8. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature. Paul, what have you left out? Nothing. He's covered everything outside the world. He's covered all the stuff that's in the world, the depths, the heights, everything. He says, none of this, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us. From the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so back here in Ephesians 3, he says in verse 19, And to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. This is fantastic. We're born with a desire to know things. We're made in the image of God. We have an incurable curiosity. We're always learning. We're always asking questions. We're always exploring. We're always thinking, some more than others. But the point is that we, we know what it is to gain knowledge, to have knowledge, and so on. And yet there's always limits. There's limits on everything. And here he says there is no limits because our eyes are passing from the seen to the unseen. Our eyes are passing from this world into what is outside of this world, from what is creaturely to the Creator. We're looking at Christ himself and he says, you, I want you to know that which passes knowledge, to know the unknowable, to comprehend the incomprehensible, to stretch, as it were, the limits of the limitless. What does that mean? It means that his love is like himself because he is love. Right? Christ in his divine nature is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He who is God, and now God-man, his love is also unknowable. It passes our understanding. This is actually fantastic news at a number of respects. I'll hit on a common theme, one that you'll hear me never relent on, on rehearsing. It means that in eternity... We're never done. There's always more, never less. That, that when we've gone trillions of years into, into eternity, just on this attribute of the love of God, not mentioning all the other ones, and beholding it in its glory in the face of Jesus Christ, 
you will, as I've said many times before, be no closer to the end than when you began, as it were, three trillion years earlier. It never gets old. It is impossible to ever be boring. It is the most exhilarating, the most joy-inducing, the most pleasurable thing that anyone can ever experience. And the Lord is saying, you're going to know it. And you're going to continue to know it. And you'll never stop learning to know more of it. But you'll never know the end of it. It's great news for the Christian. Because here in this world, we come and we sit under the ministry of God's word and the preaching of the word. The Bible's opened. It's preached three times a week, year after year. You family worship two ends of the day. You have your private worship. You're pouring over the Bible. You're reading good old reformed books. You have edifying discussions with one another. And all of this is absolutely wonderful. The answer to this prayer we experience here and now. We see it. We, we, we come to know more of the love of Christ. We come to drink in more of it. And we're always turning a new corner and seeing new dimensions that we hadn't seen before. But what I'm saying is that that's never going to stop. Indeed, it's going to accelerate in glory. And it's going to expand in ways that are beyond our comprehension. And so we should give ourselves now contemplating this, meditating upon it, filling our hearts with it, reveling over it before the Lord in our expressions in prayer. It ought to be what motivates our repentance. When we see our sin, it breaks our heart against the backdrop of Christ's love. After all of his love and after all of the love he's shown, this is what I've done. This is who I am. This is how I've sinned. That cuts us to the core. Right? It brings brokenness as it ought and sorrow for a sin as it ought. And it brings the fruit of repentance as it ought. It increases and strengthens our faith and it increases our obedience unto the Lord. Right? These dimensions can't be measured. They can't be calculated by a supercomputer. A group of scientists at NASA you know, might be able to explore a fraction of space. They can never get to this. You can never say how big and give the answer when it comes to the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. They can't answer the question how big is space, but it's still finite. Christ's love is infinite. The point is, for the believer, you know something of this. And you're growing to know more of it. But you'll never know it all. You'll never exhaust it. Endless, endless discoveries. You'll never be, you know, it's difficult to say this. There is a sinless, sanctified discontentment in heaven. You're perfectly, exquisitely satisfied to the maximum, blissfully content, and yet always craving more of Christ. Your appetite is increasing. You have to live. You have to live with that paradox because it's true. You know better than most that Rutherford said, heaven would, be not, would not be heaven if Christ were not there. 
heaven would be hell to me if Christ were not there, Rutherford said. Because Christ is heaven. Having him, seeing him, is heaven itself. Thirdly, lastly, being filled with the fullness of God, we'll touch this briefly, verse, end of verse 19, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. We're talking about the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about the expansion of our souls in taking in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the, a knowledge and, and fullness of of God himself, so that as we're being filled and filled and filled and filled and filled in our knowing, we're to be filled with all the fullness of God, literally filled unto all the fullness of God. He's saying, I pray that you will be filled and filled up to God's full ability. And that's limitless. So I'm praying that you will be filled unto all the fullness of God himself. Growth into fullness of which God himself is the limit. And Paul is looking, standing on the precipice. He's on the edge. He's looking into eternity, as it were. There, of course, we'll have resurrected bodies. There, we'll have sinless souls. There, we will have glorified human natures in our totality. There, we will be pure. We will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There, we see the fulfillment, the completion, as it were, the, 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 the broader picture of what it means to be filled with all, unto all the fullness of God. Then we attain, of course, the fullness of love. In many ways, this is the fulfilling. Paul is praying according to the will of God, of course. He's praying in according with God's will, but he's also lining up his prayers in the vein of his Savior's prayers. He's praying like Christ prays. Here's how Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 26. And I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. Right? Paul's praying along the lines of, of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so to look into the face of this love and to continue in unbelief is a damnable sin. To listen to the word of God this evening, to, to hear something, even as it were, from a distance of the love of God and the Lord Jesus Christ and to persist in unbelief, to refuse to come to him, to not run to him, to not desire to be a recipient of, of this saving love is truly a damnable sin. There's nothing else left, nothing else appropriate, nothing else suitable for such a person than, the, than for them to be forever damned. 
I hope you're hearing me. I hope you're hearing the word of the Lord. My dear unconverted friend, you have set before you what if you, that which, if you reject, will haunt you in hell forever. Sermons that are replayed to your torment for all of eternity. No, the Lord Jesus Christ comes this evening in the gospel, clothed in his love. And to those who even find within their hearts that pull, that tug, that inclination to stay put or to pull away or to turn from the disclosure of Christ in the gospel, Christ comes clothed in love in the gospel this evening to people like you. And he says, come yet. I'm the kind of savior who saves enemies. You're an enemy. Come to him by faith to be received by him in love. For the Lord's people, there's a tickle at times almost in our souls to be giddy with excitement. All the resources that there are to be had, all that there could be, all that could be known that we have not yet known. Shame on us for our lack of appetite to know it. Shame on us for loving the things of this world. Shame on us for loving what is passing and fleeting and poultry and that which is going to turn to ash. Shame on us for setting our hearts, our love on these things. When the Lord Jesus Christ is brought before us, my friends, we too need to pray that the Lord would enable us to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, the revelation of the love of God. So we find ourselves with wonder of wonders really set before us. For the unbeliever, you know, we've noted that we're all, myself included, we're born filthy and wretched and the stench of sin sticks fast to us. And yet the Lord comes to you. You know, he comes to you, young people. You say, some of the young people say to themselves, you know, I, I can't wait. I want to I marry someone I love. I want to marry someone that I know will love me. And that's fine and lawful and appropriate and good. But here this evening, you have something far better set before you. Look at the greatness of Christ's love that is being offered this evening. To be wed to him to be married to him in the covenant of grace, to be the bride of the King of Kings, the one whose love never fails. Well, the Lord knows I would do all in my power if I could to bring every soul in this auditorium to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that the Lord would move your heart by the love of Christ. 
I hope that for many of you, you have, and I know you have, felt it. You've seen it. You've tasted the glory of his love. You know what it means to talk about its drawing power, its influence, the magnetic pull upon the soul. And to the degree that that's the case, why wait any longer? Let us flee to him. Let us run to him. Let us cry out to him. Let us seek him. Let us look to him. He's willing to show us yet more of, of this love. Here is the source, believer, of your spiritual strength. You don't deserve, I don't deserve a token of it. And yet he's immersed you in an infinite ocean of love. He who is chief among 10,000 has come to delight in and to pour out his affection and love upon us. So we're to bask in that love. We're to drink from that cup of love. In the midst of all of our trials and sorrows and losses and temptations and doubts and joys and triumphs and all the other things, our prayer ought to be, Lord, when I'm at my lowest, lead me to the love of God in Christ. But Lord, when I'm at my absolute highest, lead me to the love of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that all of it may lead us to that same spot. That we may be able to comprehend the breadth, length, depth, height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Let's stand together for prayer. Almighty and ever-blessed God in heaven, thou art love. O Lord, we have had revealed to us in the word of God that thou art love. And yet we confess that we find it much easier to mouth the words than we do to feel the power of its reality. O Lord, grant that we would be given eyes to see, minds to comprehend, souls to be enraptured with the love of Jesus Christ. Come to us, O Lord, fetch us in love. Draw us in love, turn us in love. Bring us, O Lord, to revel in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask these things in his name. Amen. We'll respond to the reading and preaching of God's word by singing from Psalm 31. The end of the psalm, verses 21 to 24. Psalm 31. Verses 21 to 24. The tune is St. Lawrence, which is tune 117. Listen to these words. All praise and thanks be to the Lord, for he hath magnified his wondrous love to me within a city fortified. How do we respond? Verse 23. Oh, love the Lord, all ye his saints. Because the Lord doth guard the faithful, and he plenteously proud doers doth reward. 21 to the end.
stand for the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen.